So it has come to this. The last evening of our time together. I wanted to tell you first about um, John Francis. Many of you may have already know of him, but for those of you who don't know of him, John Francis is an African-American man who was living in San Francisco at the time of a great oil spill in San Francisco Bay. He was so moved by the uh, by the sight of the birds all drenched in oil that he decided to uh, stop riding in cars. And then soon after he stopped riding in cars, he also stopped speaking. And he said he stopped speaking. He took his vow of silence as a gift to his community because he said, man, I just argued all the time. (coughs) He then stopped speaking for 17 years. (laughs) And during that time, he got a PhD in environmental science. And So if you think that the six days of silence (coughs) have been arduous, look him up when you go home. So in this beautiful place for the last six days, we have been held by the more than 40 years of practice that have taken place here. And even in the moments when we thought we weren't practicing, we were still held uh, by that practice. And certainly I have felt myself in the stream of your practice. Uh, And so simply by your very presence, I think all of our connection to the Dharma has uh, deepened. That intensity of retreat life uh, ends tomorrow. And if we have found some uh, freedom or liberation in our hearts, some measure of that, some tenderness, some connection, the question naturally arises, How can we bridge the transition into our lives so that these qualities are not lost or become dimmed over time? And perhaps you're even wondering how they can be further developed. At this point in in most retreats that I've been in, I start to think very poignantly about all of the um, 
moments I could have been cultivating mindfulness and metta, and I was actually just cultivating mindlessness. I was in my dream world. I guess it's familiar by your sounds. And then realizing the preciousness of the time in the retreat, I begin to worry about, um, will I regress? Whether I'll lose whatever measure of metta and equanimity and mindfulness and insight have come as a fruit of the practice. And so if you're feeling that, maybe you're beginning to get a little bit tight and thinking that you can hold on to the practice and that kind of a tight way. And we may even have visions and plans about how we're actually going to practice three hours a day or um, start to make plans about how we're going to get back here. That's how I was anyway when I was in retreat. And how we can be still and quiet and non-reactive and practice mindfulness of mind states in the midst of our boss yelling. Good luck with that. Or, or when someone's stealing our parking place or when we're late for work or relationship is breaking apart or someone that I love is seriously ill. So we try to hold on to these qualities of mind and heart that have come or emerged over these days of sitting and walking as we've been paying such intimate attention to the body, to the mind, and to the heart. And what we've discovered, perhaps, and now trust, is that instead of trying to hold on to states or, what, or insights that we may have gotten, that instead we could nurture and cultivate certain qualities of mind and heart that will serve us, not only for ourselves alone, but also for the world, in our relationship, in our relationships, uh, whether intimate or distant, that this practice is not a practice that it may, in retreat, seem inner-directed, it may seem individual, but in fact, what I'd like to talk about tonight, partially, is the fact that this practice is a collective practice, that the practice that we do does not only benefit ourselves, but it benefits the whole world, believe it or not. The qualities that we have developed developed, don't have to be acquired. They're innate to our natural being. And as we have seen, they can continue to be developed. We know that there is something loving and creative that emerges in our mind stream from the space that we create in the time in in the mind, every time we are willing to be mindfully, gently, and lovingly with what is difficult 
or to allow a thought that may have been previously compelling us to speak or act destructively. We're allowing it to arise and pass away in the mind without engagement or expression. And we hope that the practice that creates the space and these loving and creative qualities that have begun to be revealed are not lost as we return to our diurnal lives, the work of family and play. We wonder whether the seeds we've planted can survive the harsh weather and conditions of the difficulties of life. So Audre Lorde says, it has rained for five days running. The world is a round puddle of sunless water where small islands are only beginning to cope. A young boy in my garden is bailing out water from his flower patch. When I ask him why, he tells me, young seeds that have not seen sun forget and drown easily. Seeds can certainly be deprived of sun, overwhelmed by rain. And these seeds that we are planting, we're planting them in our mind, in our hearts, and in our bodies, are no different. We know how it is to be knocked about by the tumult of our daily lives, battered by the constant barrage of bad news, overwork, and despair. And these days, most of us work more hours than our psyches or our bodies should be subjected to. We may overestimate or deceive ourselves about the very nature of possibility and the openings for change and get stuck in despair and cynicism or find ourselves caught up in a rigid relation to our tasks, our time, and our human relations. The message of our culture is more is better, right? Doesn't matter the quality, just as long as it's more. Our long-term vision is sacrificed for immediate gains, which are usually inadequate. And this is true for our economic problems, for our social problems, for our ecological problems. Our anxiety around scarcity and the sense of a world on the verge of echo collapse disables us and disconnects us from our own internal sources of wisdom, vision, and spaciousness. I was the other day reading uh, about a... uh, a documentary that's being written, that's being produced, that's going to be shown actually on black entertainment television about um, 
the Black Lives Matter movement, how it started, etc. And uh, Jesse Williams, who's an activist, was quoted in, in what I was reading to say, the black community has been a state, in a state of emergency, crisis, and pervasive traumatic stress disorder, which is a new, new phrase I've heard in yeah. see since 1619. So that's deep. And the inevitable consequences of systemic oppression are very clear. Two million people, the majority overwhelmingly black men are currently incarcerated. Many for the economic offense of not affording to pay court fees for trials, for trumped up misdemeanor charges, for petty crimes that should not, not even have been tried the crime of living while poor. The need for institutional and systemic change is long overdue and long, long known. And the long-standing demand for inclusion is becoming urgent and the, pro- the, pro- the progress is glacial. Yet, We are a community called to deeply understand the urgency for collective awakening while concurrently realizing that collective awakening is completely dependent on one being at a time. That's you. The work we've been doing here is not inconsequential individually, but also significantly, it is consequential collectively. We can look around the world and see how collective suffering comes to life in collective forms. I'm sorry, how individual suffering comes to life in collective forms and how society is a manifestation and projection of our own internal turmoil. So John Francis, whom I mentioned before, said famously when interviewed about silence that you can take the silence with you. So I offer it to you for your life in the outside world. (laughs) You can take the silence with you. And what does that mean? It means all of the skills that you have learned here through your own effort, your own practice, all of the skills that you've learned here are portable. But like Audre Lorde said in that poem, seeds can forget and drown. So they are seeds that you have cultivated, you've planted, you've cultivated them, you've watered them, you've shown them the sun. So in order for them to grow, you must continue to cultivate and tend them.
So because oppression can be unbearable, many of us learn to disconnect from our bodies, from our environments, from our emotional worlds and from people around us. We may feel incapable of functioning in a world of deep intimacy. So we protect ourselves with the armor of anger, denial, self-neglect and abuse all in an effort to shield ourselves from the depression, disenchantment, and discouragement we fear would overwhelm us if we gave it space. It's vital that we understand that we need some ongoing relationship with our internal pain that has immeasurable impact on the people around us and the work we do and our own happiness. That if we're not healthy, physically, mentally, and in our hearts, we can't think clearly. If we're only working out of anger, we reproduce the energy and momentum of destruction. If our visions of the world are not based on wisdom and presence and kindness and significantly in balance, they cannot act as good seeds for action. Individual hatreds, lead to violence, oppression, war, and abuse. We're all familiar with these forms of collective suffering because they are much of the motivating forces behind movements for justice. And we know, we know from the practice we've done here for these last six days, that as human beings we have access to a wellspring of wisdom, goodwill, and compassion. And so we must ask what kind of transformation we're seeking for ourselves and consequently for our world. We desire freedom and a way that expresses the best of what we have to offer as human beings. Our complex intelligence, and our truth, our joy, and our kindness. The intensity of retreat life ends tomorrow. And so if we've found this tenderness and connection, we're naturally questioning how we can bridge the transition into our lives so that these qualities are not lost. Well, I want to talk about the quality of equanimity tonight. Because for me, that quality of equanimity is the quality that I have found is the perfect bridge between intense retreat practice and going into intense life practice. Because our practice builds a reservoir of equanimity and spaciousness 
And that provides us with access to our deepest capacities when we're in the midst of turmoil and difficulty. I think this week what we've been, it's been interesting to me that what's actually shown up in all of our talks and all, and no matter what topic we, dis, we all agreed we would speak on, that our talks have really all been pointing to this quality of equanimity. We've been discovering here the ability to deeply and compassionately connect with our experience in any moment. And Joseph so eloquently talked about last night without clinging or rejecting, which the Buddha said uh, is that freedom is not possible if we are clinging and rejecting. So if we're allowing for what is, what is to arise and, to, and be engaged with wisdom, without grasping, without friction, without struggle, and without resistance, this quality, this balanced quality of equanimity arises. We can clearly open to whatever is happening, whatever is happening in our experience, and when we clearly open to what is, we can see uh, that we can gain the ground to imagine what might be possible in this world. And where we are not as easygoing as we would like to be, that's just me, I don't know about you. We can develop compassion for ourselves and for each other, and a gentleness with our learning edges that uh, allows us the space to grow where we can. This depth comes through the mindful and meta practices we've been developing and aligning with the truth of things as they are. So when we do that, we gain equanimity, a combination of power, strength, and presence, a balance in the midst of all of the ups and downs of life. And there, uh, in in Buddhist language, it says, the Buddha said that there were eight worldly winds that come. Uh, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. I kind of like that last one, fame and disrepute, especially in this modern world where fame seems to be such a high value. So our in in. Uh, cultivating this quality of equanimity, this combination of power, strength, and presence, our actions are driven by wisdom and compassion rather than craving, aversion, and delusion. 
And when, we, when this is so, we find that we are joined in an interconnected reality with all of the creatures of the world, human and non-human. This quality of heart equanimity is ubiquitous in the teachings, which gives me a hint that it's a really important quality to be um, developed and cultivated. It's the fourth of the four Brahma-viharas. So we've talked about metta and compassion. We didn't talk much about mudita, if at all. That is the joy of... um, that's taking delight or joy in the joy or delight of others. So that instead of feeling, oh, that's a great job, it should have been mine. We're delighted that our friend has received this beautiful job offer. That mudita, this quality of the heart leaping in joy for the joy of another. And the fourth is upeka, equanimity, that I'm speaking about. It's also the seventh of the seven factors of enlightenment and the tenth of the ten paramis, or the ten perfections of a Buddha, the qualities of the heart of a Buddha. So many of us know the story of the Buddha. Maybe some of us don't. Born into a privileged background, And some stories say he was given palaces by his father because as a child, the soothsayers said he would either be a great king or a great sage. And of course, like all wise fathers, the king decided he should be a great king, (laughs) preferring this that the latter, his, his being a king, his father tried to protect him. And so he was raised in great luxury behind the palace walls, protected from the outside world. And even so, as a young man, he scaled the palace walls and, as the story goes, encountered what he'd never seen before, a sick person, an old person, a corpse. And he also encountered a meditating being. And before that, he knew nothing of aging, illness, and death. And this set him on a path of discovery, seeking the answer to the question of human suffering. So the Buddha's journey is an archetypal journey, or story for our own journey, culminating in the capacity of our own hearts for freedom. A heart that reveals these, the ten paramis, the, the, the inherent generosity, integrity, wisdom, renunciation, energy, uh, patience, truthfulness, um, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And as one finds these qualities in one's body, in one's breath, heart, and actions, they bring us to this quality of balance. And it's, a, it's the discovery of what it might be like to be at rest in your being amidst all of the changing conditions of the, vicissi- of the vicissitudes of life. 
So equanimity is the recognition of the seasons. Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And it goes on, the great rhythms and cycles of our life and of nature. Something like the eight worldly winds. So anyone not have these experiences changing in your life? like to talk to you afterwards if you don't. So equanimity is discovering the capacity of our heart to rest in these gales of winds. But of course, I hear you saying, well, you know, that's all well and good, but I don't like to be blamed. I like to be praised. I like gain, don't like loss. And, you know, it's quite natural. We seek to be respected or praised. And it's pretty hard to act in the world without wanting these, only these cycles of gain and pleasure and fearing the cycles of loss and pain. There is a place of balance that we know, and you've experienced it this week, I am sure of it. We may not always have it, but we know it in ourselves, that place of poise and rest. We know it deeply, and we can carry it into daily life. Now, it shouldn't be confused with, especially for those of you who are activists, I hear you saying, you know, It sounds passive. It sounds like indifference to say to to pain and suffering. There's a um, there's a word that I think sums up indifference, and it's a modern day word. It's whatever. (laughs) And my friend Larry Yang said, we were talking about it, and he said even his 98-year-old mom uses it. (laughs) So the online urban dictionary describes it this way. I don't care. Nothing you say or do could matter to me. Or, I'm actually upset you're stealing my air. <laughs> so, so it's not that. Equanimity is not that. But, you know, we, we do have these ideas that if we don't get too close to things, that um, I'll be safe. Right? If I just 
keep that distance or armor myself a little bit more. It is a kind of indifference, a kind of backing away. And that's not equanimity. And the other is if I were doing it right, somehow all the vicissitudes of life wouldn't affect me and change me. I'm no good at life. But they will. They always do. We can't avoid it. We're a new person each day, each year, each experience. This is T.S. Eliot. We die to each other daily. What we know of other people is only our memory of the moments during which we knew them. And they have changed since then. To pretend that they and we are the same is a useful and convenient social convention, which must sometimes be broken. We must also remember that at every meeting, we are meeting a stranger. I love that. So we've been talking this whole week about um, changes. Joseph spoke last night about uh, the insight into impermanence and that everything is changing. We listen to the bell, even the sound of the bell changing. He challenged us to walk out of the hall, seeing moment to moment to moment to moment all of the changing landscapes within just that short walk from here to wherever you were doing your walking. Equanimity understands these changes. It understands the change in the cells of our body that change completely every seven years. And of our breath, that children grow up and people age and die. The seasons revolve. This this incessant change to which we are subject is always totally within our sight. And our just looking in the mirror, I sometimes look in the mirror and say, how'd you get in there? (laughs) That's not who you're supposed to look like. So equanimity has with it a fearlessness and a deep compassion and a centeredness that allows us to see all of this and not be thrown off balance. Zen master Suzuki Roshi, when speaking of practice, said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And there you are, tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows, and thoughts and worries. And you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice.
And the thing about the power of practice is it's not developed in that, in those moments. It's developed when things are relatively okay. When you forget, as Joseph again was saying last night, and as um, Dara was, was reminding us in her talk on the Four Noble Truths, without this ability to see in times that are relatively okay, we will suffer. Many of us can testify to this. So this is the quality of balance in the midst of all of the changes of life, the great changes. And they will continue to happen as long as we're alive. Ajahn Chah, great Thai master, said the great teachings of Buddhism can be summed up in one simple movement, coming back when you're lost on one side to the center and moving back when you're lost on the other to the center, just to be here in the center of your being. And this capacity of balance or presence or equanimity brings a kind of strength. And it's not the strength of fighting against or struggling or resisting, but that strength of openness that we've heard about in the talks this week. This ability to open whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. They're all here for us in our lives. And they are, they are here not only for us to practice equanimity with, but for us to learn from. And we cannot learn if we're struggling. If we're standing in the midst with balance, then we can see clearly. So it's a kind of stability or balance or ease and a trust. And that trust, in the midst of all things, comes from our knowing, with wisdom, the truth of things as they are. This impermanence and insubstantial nature of what we call self is the basis of our understanding that allows us to respond with equanimity. This trust we learn when we sit on our cushions, when we sit on our chairs, when we sit in this meditative posture that essentially signals to our whole experience, I am here to receive you lovingly, gently, kindly, no matter what your nature is, no matter what quality of experience is arising, I am sitting like a king or a queen in the midst of all of this experience. 
with dignity and nobility. Whether things are difficult or not, pleasant or unpleasant. And you sit there and your body hurts and you sit with the pain in the knee or the back or the shoulders and you include it in your awareness and in your loving kindness. And that's what brings the strength. And what brings and what comes from that strength is this quality of equanimity. And I know when I've taught about equanimity that people who are activists get really scared because they really do believe that it will tamp down their ability to respond vociferously if if necessary. But that fierceness must be mixed with love. The fierceness sometimes is required. The voice that says, no, this cannot happen, this must be changed, is a necessary voice. But if it does that with aversion, rather than kindness and compassion. It is adding to this this world the very thing against which it is railing. This is from Sayadaw Upandita, who is a teacher of many of ours, was, passed away recently brought a lot of mindfulness practice to the West, trained many of our teachers. He said, practicing satipatthana, mindfulness, means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. So far, so good. He said, without peace in our little worlds, crying for peace in the larger world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. So mindfulness and equanimity allow us to change the suffering in the world in a way that doesn't create more suffering. We can't cry out for peace when we are in that place of violence ourselves. You may remember Martin Luther King, his beautiful aspiration of equanimity said we can stand up before our most violent opponents and say we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will still love you. Throw us in jail and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. Be assured that one day we will win our freedom, but we will not only win the freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your hearts and conscience, we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. 
And that's how expansive equanimity is. It is not just about our individual experience, but how our practice literally changes the world around us. Simply by being here, by going through the retreat, however it's been, difficult, easy, blissful, sorrowful, if you've been able to stay present, to stay in your seat, you have come so far in your mindfulness and equanimity practice, and even if you don't feel that mindful, and even if you don't feel that equanimous, it is still working through you because you haven't left (laughs) until tomorrow. And you're holding the 10,000 joys and you're holding the 10,000 sorrows, which is the way the Taoists describe life. You are swimming in that ocean. Equanimity is not a small thing. And it, as, as you've heard in the talks, it's also not a state. It is a quality of heart and mind. It's not something that we're going to practice for and it's going to come and we're going to grasp it and we're going to hold on to it and that's how we're going to be for the rest of our lives. I was telling someone in one of our meetings, that it's like the headstand. That we're, when you're doing a headstand, you're never never completely still. You're still within, but the body is moving. The balance of the body is constantly adjusting itself. It's going to the left, and so we're pulling it to the right. It's going to the right, we're pulling it to the left. It's going forward, we're pulling it back. Equanimity, balance, is like that. So we're resting in a timeless aspect of being. But we're doing the work that is necessary to keep it coming back over and over and over again. In the Tibetan teachings, it says to understand spiritual life, you must take the practice of making your sufferings into the path, of welcoming your sufferings as the place of your practice. Wow. There's the story of a Tibetan lama who was captured by the Chinese, jailed and tormented, and died in a Chinese prison. He had smuggled a letter out to his disciple in which he thanked the Chinese for their food and for the perfect opportunity to develop the compassion of a Buddha. He said, I I might never have gotten the opportunity had I remained in Tibet. From this vision, everything balances out in the end 
and the teachings of karma are part of it. So the equanimity chant is all beings are the recipients of their own action, of their words and speech, their bodies and their minds. They are the heirs, the inheritors of their actions, born of their intention, related to the volition of their heart. Their actions produce their sorrows and their joys. Whatever they do for good or for ill, of that karma that they create, they will receive this. This includes compassion for all beings, that they understand this and do that which brings happiness to the world and to their lives. So you, can, you can't change another person's karma. You can care for them, teach them, assist them in any way you can. But it's their own acts that create their suffering. So there's very deep compassion, as Dara taught, Uh, beautifully the other night. You don't know what a person needs. You see all of the changing conditions of the world and you have no idea what another person needs. We don't know what's supposed to happen. Circumstances change. We get sick, people die around us. And we get tested over and over and over again. So like the headstand, our equanimity is constantly being called to this direction or that. But we have tremendous resilience. Humans are completely amazing. We live in the desert, we live in Alaska, we live in the cold and the hot and all kinds of different, in the desert, all kinds of different conditions. And there is that resilience in our being, and that's a part of equanimity. We have the capacity to meet life exactly as it is. This mixed bag of sorrows and beauty and joy, it's absolutely possible to discover in the midst of this peace, compassion, and equanimity not apart from our humanity, but in the very face of it. We have struggles as people on earth, and we face sorrows and we face difficulties. If we understood that we're a part of life, some greater truth will awaken in our, the cells of our body. Because when we feel it, there is something incredibly generous about life. And because we understand that, we can receive it even in the midst of conflict and difficulty as a blessing. When the Buddha was enlightened, the eyes of understanding opened in him. 
he looked out and he saw beings being born and dying in every form according to a multiplicity of uh, various circumstances and karma. And what arose in him was tremendous compassion. Because he saw beings like us who want freedom, but out of confusion and ignorance, doing the very things that lead to suffering. That's what inspired him to teach, to see every kind of circumstance and every place into which beings are born and to see that with understanding and bring to it a heart of compassion and of complete balance and equanimity. This teaching that we got from Joseph last night about letting go is one of the secrets to it. And I'd like to end with a, some advice from one of my teachers from a while ago, Ajahn Sumedho. He said, for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and grasping, you simplify your meditation practice, practices to just two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and that, achieving this and going into that. The grasping mind, he said, wants to read the suttas, study the Abhidhamma, learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Madhyamika, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, (laughs) write books and become a renowned, famous authority in Buddhism. Don't listen, Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) He said, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, which are very sorrowful, Why not just let go, let go, let go? For years I did nothing but this in my practice. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say let go, let go, let go, until the desire faded. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) He must have just been invited to one. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. So we only have these poverty-stricken practices. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, of course, I wish you much equanimity in your journeying forth. And I'm so certain that the strength of practice that you've developed over this last week will serve you really well in your further cultivation and development of equanimity. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.